Hello, everybody. This is another episode of Politics and the Humanities. I'm Tom Merrill. I'm a professor at American University. I'm here with my colleague, Sarah Marsh. Hello, Sarah. Hey, everyone. How you doing? Uh, today, we're lucky to have a guest, uh, Michael Weinman. Um, Michael is an old friend and a former colleague from a long time ago uh, when we both taught at St. John's College. Um, he is currently a professor of philosophy at Bard College Berlin, but he's spending a year uh, teaching as a visiting assistant uh, professor of comparative literature at Indiana, Univer Indiana University. Um, he is a very prolific author, um, such that the rest of us are put to shame. So I have to publicly acknowledge my shame before Michael. Um, he's written uh, uh, several books, three books. Um, uh, one, the most recent uh, full book is called Parthenon and Liberal Education, um, which is very much about the topics that we like to talk about on the show. Um, he's also just edited, uh, has an edited volume that's come out that is extremely timely called The Emergence of Illiberalism. And we'll put the links to both of those in the um, in the episode description. He's also has a new article coming out, which uh, Sarah and I have not read. So we're going to get a preview called uh, Twilight of the American Idols, Statue Politics Between Trumpism and the Movement for Black Lives, um, which sounds both Nietzschean and uh, very much of the, of the moment. Um, so we, our topic today is um, great books in the left, uh, because great books are often associated with the right. And the question that we're really interested in today is, does liberal education have a politics? Um, if so, what does it look like? Um, it may not, but, but that's the, one of the things we need to talk about. Um, but before we turn to that topic, I, I just feel that we have to acknowledge we're, we're recording this on, is today the 11th, Monday the 11th? Um, in the wake of the events at the Capitol last Wednesday, which uh, I guess we could call a riot or an insurrection or an attack, it just feels important for us to acknowledge that. And I guess I should just ask uh, Michael and Sarah, do you, do you want to say anything about that? Or is there something that we should say? So, over to you guys. I've been watching a lot of footage and reading a lot online to try to understand what what happened and i think my my sense of things as an academic somebody who reads a lot of history is that in our profession you sometimes wonder when the history will happen and it seems that last week the history caught up with us and and something in fact happened and uh, i think one of the things i want to talk about today is what should academics do uh, what should people who read and study do uh, to respond to what happened last week? And is there anything we can do to respond to last week in a meaningful way? Right, which is part of the question of what's what's our stance as, as people who care about liberal education, but are also citizens of a, of a democracy and, and have obligations in that direction as well. Mm -hmm. Michael, do you have thoughts about this? mentioned uh which you know which which is an, a, an attempt you know to kind of have something like a scholarly reflection on uh political culture in the united states um in in the middle of events right so it's 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 meant as a kind of comment on the interregnum between uh the trump administration and uh the biden uh administration for an american studies audience in europe um and what I was moved to say there is that um, I thought that my sense, listening to Europeans speak about the election in November and December, obviously there was a lot of worry about procedures and, and, and uh, you know, that what stays with me is that what happened on Wednesday, a at a time, there will be a time when we come to forget, I think, that it happened because of um, protocol, right? You know, because of the most staid, boring, kind of procedure that even people who love American politics and who are history buffs, right, tend to ignore, right, the confirmation. We, we make a big deal of the State of the Union. We make a big deal of other things. But we often, uh, and, and people maybe even remember what day the Electoral College votes in December, but the confirmation of the reception of the vote, the sealed votes of the electors of the states is not something I think almost any American cared about until this time. And, um, 
Yeah. So it's not, forget what I wrote, but you know, like what, what I was moved to write about is that, you know, something big is going to happen. This is my feeling, you know, something big is going to happen, not at the inauguration, not at a time that we're all waiting for, but at a moment that we would usually ignore, you know, in the hundred days uh, between roughly between the election and, and, and the, you know, the arrival of the new administration. And um, that's what I feel that we got. And I think it was a punch in the stomach, you know, to people who care about the institutions for that reason. Um, I think McConnell, this would be the last thing that I say, that McConnell gave, as he said, I mean, it was the most important vote um, that he that he had in 36 years, I think he said in the Senate. And not only that, it was by far the best speech he's ever given. He's not a great speaker. Uh, he's a wonderful, he's an excellent parliamentarian. His views are Michael, great. we're, we're going to put this in the greatest hits of Michael Michael Wyman's praise of Mitch McConnell. Exactly. Yeah, here it is. <laughs> it's a long record. This is the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the partisan that I dislike the most in American politics um, for years uh, gave the speech of his life before, right, before the whatever they are. The rioters, the vandals. My word would be the vandals. The goths. In the rude sense. The, right, the goths. Before the goths stormed the citadel. Um, anyway, yeah. He did yeah, right. speech before. And I think that's what, you know, I hope that we'll remember that speech, is my feeling. You know, this is going to be a hard period. It was an ugly day. But like in my conversations with people, I've been asking them to remember that McConnell gave that speech before it happened. Well, because of, you know, because of how febrile the moment is and because there really is something worth preserving that Mitch McConnell and I apparently both believe in. What, <laughs> what did McConnell say, Michael, that for you is the most important thing for us to hang on to? So I was watching that speech live and I don't have the transcript in front of me. But he said, what did he say exactly? But he basically said, this will be the end of the Republic, right? That's what he said. Um, what his if exact we, words allow, were, if we allow, yeah. right, if we allow Congress to become a board of electors on steroids, American Republic. I don't know what the transcript says, but that's the sentence that stays with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was furious and he was virtually, he was as he gave the speech, if you were watching it live, his voice was breaking up. Um, mine is now. And I felt strongly identified um, with Mitch McConnell. Um, and I that, that so that's what stays with me for Wednesday. I really hate, I hate, I'm, I, and I say it, I, my mother taught me never to use the verb hate because it's a strong <laughs> verb. I really, I mean that. But I hate the people who did this because they've robbed me of what should have been the experience of the day, right? Which is being annoyed at one, at Cruz, I mean, anyway, right? And so on and so forth. And the ugly, awkward 10 hours of senators speaking to no one. Like, what should that day have looked like, you know? It should have been McConnell. Every other day in American politics, isn't it? Right. Except McConnell would have given that speech, which never, ever happened before, right? I mean, McConnell never gave a speech like that. So, but when you say when you say that you're um, you're talking about the protocol and the most staid, boring thing, isn't that another way of saying that those formalities are actually what make us a community, yeah. right? And that most of the time in politics, especially in the past four years, but for a long time, we've seen each other in terms of these ideological kind of banners, right? And there's sort of like this imaginary identity that we can all march under, and it's but it's been it's kind of a dream world, right? And what we saw on Wednesday was the dream world crashing into the real world with with terrible effects, right? I mean that the video of the um, the African American cop leading the people leading the protesters the rioters the wrong way, right? That's an incredible incredibly moving video. Um, but yeah, I mean for anybody who cares about us as a community, that that what happened on Wednesday is a punch in the gut, yeah. right? I mean if not something worse, yeah. No, and I hope, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's, um, so I, I mean, maybe this gets a little bit toward our topic, but, you know, so, you know, great books or a common core, or, you know, so, so it's what I, what I call curricular conservatism. Um, and what curricular conservatism stands for is exactly that, that there's a form of life, ultimately, there, there's a political manifestation of it, which we see in, you know, it's not even neoclassical, right, in the classical architecture of the capital. Um, which I strongly identify with personally um, and unabashedly. I mean, I, I, I 
I do believe that. I think that, you know, Greco-Roman classicism is the ideal architectural form for, for public space. And you wrote a whole um, book. And I did, I mean, I, for reasons which we could talk about. I could be wrong, of course. I mean, I recognize this as an aesthetic judgment that needs to be submitted. No, honestly, right? It needs it's never to happened in the past. Always a possibility in the future. One, <laughs> I'm wrong, you know, at least I'm wrong way more often than I'm right, of course. And, you but know, my, my, my but right, I think that that's super meaningful, that it has that political expression. And then I see this sort of whatever this is, the, you know, humanist education, quote unquote, great books, which don't strongly identify with great books in particular, right. but but right. that sort of common core formulation, of course it's under attack, you know, in this generation like never before for the same reason, sorry, for the same reason that the capital was under attack. That's so Michael, I want to ask, what is it about the the aesthetics of the capital and the interior space, the way sound works, you know, that makes that form particularly conducive to the conducting of the public business like what is it about that that aesthetic because that's the aesthetic that was invaded and that's and the images from that collision of this you know imaginary online space that Tom's talking about with the the brick and mortar and the granite and the statuary that is part of what what is making the the impact what it is so what is it about the space of the capital that is conducive to the public good and then what happens when that gets invaded well, I think, I mean, this is where the Romans clearly improved on the Greeks is, is, is the dome. And that's actually, and it has to do with the fact that somebody really cares about something. Of course, everyone's mic now. It's like, right? There was this absurd moment when the proceedings began and Pence needed to speak when the microphone wasn't working. I don't know if you were watching from the beginning, but... Um, but I found this interesting, right? Like the actually turn off the microphones. If you care about what you're saying, it'll carry in, you know, in, in the chambers. So that's one. I, I, I think that that's supremely important. Wait, so just to make sure I understand. So, so the architecture of the dome makes it possible for people to hear each other. Yeah, yeah. And the statuary hall, you know, the way, and they felt it too when they walked through. I don't know exactly what was motivating people. Yeah. In, the, in the moment in the statuary hall, but it's, you know, it's the circular space, but it's also the fact that if you shout the way that they were shouting, they loved the way their voices were rising and echoing together. And that's a profoundly democratic thing, you know, and I felt it also right during the protests in the, in the Wisconsin um, state house, early, right. And, and when they came to the, when people lay down on the floor of the, you know, of the third floor, it's, it's powerful, right? The way that the space opens and closes. Um, yeah, but also, right, and it's precision. And it's, so I think that that's, you know, these, what makes these, the footage iconic of the view out the north side of the Capitol, for instance, right, is I, I would say the precision of, um, you know, the precision of the intersections of the facades of the building with the ped, you know, with the pedestal, with the, with the, and people feel that, you know, and they, and it, and it's what gives it that sort of sacred sense, you know, from the building to, you know, the, the platform on which the building sits to the lawn that surrounds um, and so on. And it's what, you know, what gives people, right. I mean, I think it gives people a sense of sacrality, of holiness. Okay. I'll say holiness in English. And, um, yeah, and, and 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 vandals, and that's the right word in my mind for these for those individuals. Um, vandals love nothing more than violating what's holy. That's my belief. Um, yeah. And but but I take it that you think that in order for us to be a political community, there has to be some something that we hold high yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, and the capital, of course, is the top. There's no right. I mean, that's it's so meaningful. Of course, I mean, it's an obvious sort of thing. Maybe it doesn't even bear repeating. But that, you know, that 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 the speech that the president gave was on low ground, you know, and he and he in you know he instructed people to march up the hill, you know, um, to the highest point, right? And and that the, the that the people in the high up on high, right? How remarkable. That, um, you know, that the president of the United States still sitting, still office holding president of the United States sort of interpolated himself 
as you know the the starving masses yeah. to go to charge up the hill to the people in power let them up on the hill know and Pence in particular right know <laughs> that we're coming for them yeah. you know yeah right right i mean i mean the whole the whole um idea of the march seemed to have been something like from a horror movie right that the call is coming from within the house the bad guy is actually your own vice president right i mean it, yeah. it really is a dream world of um just craziness yeah so um can i say i i feel like given the 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 moment i want to say something sort of political um and then we and then i want to talk about great books and i guess one is um i it my feeling right at this moment and i might maybe i'll change but my feeling at this moment is that impeachment is necessary that the 25th amendment is not enough and that you know just saying well you know as some people did you know he tried it once he's not going to try it again seems to me completely the wrong lesson to take from this, um, I will say that I think if the if the impeachment need, it needs to happen swiftly and decisively, and with precision, right? So, so um, that it needs to be against him. Then again, the the people who actually invaded need to be charged and tried and punished publicly. This is a political thing. It's not about individual. I mean, it is about individual guilt and blame, but it's not a um, simply about them. It's about the the health of the polity. Um, and I think that if they wait until after the election, I think that's going to be a really awful thing. I think it's going to be like Democrats hanging around for another six months trying to beat up on Trump um, and try to milk it for for what it's worth. It needs to happen quickly. That's my my strong feeling at the moment. Um, but then I want to say something else as well. <laughs> and which is which is this. I mean, in that election, um, that the election was not a victory for the left. It was not a victory, for, and especially not for the progressive, the most progressive part of the left. Maybe we would have liked it if it were, but it wasn't, right? There were 72 million people who voted for Trump, um, despite all the things that the rest of us saw and thought were, were horrible. And that those people were not all people who um, were marching on the Capitol. They were not all people who supported the thing was happening on the Capitol. And so the, so the question that we can't let go for our democratic politics moving forward is, how does a conversation happen between the rest of the country and those people. And that's something that we can't, in our anger at Donald Trump, we can't let get get taken off the table. No, and look at the one. True. All that one thing. The only other thing so far that I've noticed to come out of this is Parlor being um, shut down. Um, that's not good. There's another. Here's another judgment from me. Uh, I don't think that was a good. I don't think that's good. Um, I don't. You know. I. I, I, I I don't think that, that I mean, was, I, it, it's apropos your point, Tom, I feel. This is my response to your point that it's a misreading of the election to say that like America's tired of the movement that led to the election or, or the sentiment. It wasn't really a consolidated movement, but the sentiment that led to the election of Donald J. Trump, it's not. Um, and somehow no platforming, and this is something that is in some of the stuff that I've written, um, about this, but you know, no platforming is not uh, is not a. When I say not right, I don't mean just or something. I mean, prove, you know, I'm speaking million dialogue here. It's not expedient. This was dumb. I mean, the last thing you want to do is turn John Matza, Metza, Matza, whatever his name is exactly. Forgive me, into a martyr, a martyr for free speech. He's the CEO of Parler. A parlor. Um, yeah. It's this balance of trying to sort out how do you prevent future violence by removing a, an ability to coordinate with right. the, the other like deep need for people to be able to talk about what's going on. Like, had, had the Department of Justice like sought an injunction against Parler and like it been suspended for 96 hours while we fit? I mean, right, so I, I will happily stand corrected if it's demonstrated that Parler was really the way 
You know what I mean? But this reeks of me to Iran saying that Facebook is responsible for 2009. Yeah. Garbage. You know what I mean? It was garbage. We all said that was garbage in 2009. We should all say it's garbage now. I mean, I don't want to spend time on Parler. <laughs> don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, and I don't want to, like, by have, us having this conversation, make, like, 15 million more people join Parler, which is probably what will happen, not because of us, but because everyone, you know. How did you know how many, how many listeners we have? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> by 15 yeah. million, I was, I was extrapolating by a million, you know. <laughs> but, but, but. 14 people, all members of our immediate family. <laughs> Hi, mom. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, we forget. We always we have these high-minded defenses of free speech that it's all about the marketplace of ideas and the best idea is going to come out. I don't believe that. I mean, we need free speech. Don't don't get me wrong. But part of the reason for free speech is because you want to know when people have bad ideas. You need to hear them, and and partly for just simple intelligence regions, right? Like people are coming to storm the Capitol. It'd be better to know about that beforehand. You know, so yeah, and a lot yeah. of people on this is, you know, as you listen to experts on um, right wing extremism and domestic terrorism, I think they say like they're following Parler for that reason. I mean, you, right? I mean, I, you know, if specific coordinated, bomb, you know, if the placement of bombs is happening on Parler, then Parler needs to be shut down, and they'll find another place, and they will, and then that place will be shut down. You know, but if it's right. like, you know, the concerned moms of Lancaster. Then, um, you know, saying things that I find unbelievable, um, then, and yeah, right. I mean, I, I don't see what we think we're doing. By we have a bigger problem on our hands. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is probably a good place to pivot and talk about great books. Yeah. You're the antidote to all this, right, Michael? So, Michael, I chose that title just to, to provoke you. <laughs> I don't ever use the word great books in my own self-descriptions, so... Uh, Sarah, you, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I tell myself about my own vocation is, is that teaching, for me, it's literature, but, but teaching old books and encouraging students to read with charity, with a critical eye, that these are important activities for subject formation in a functioning democracy, right? We all tell ourselves some version of that. And so, what I'm wondering, though, is is like, does reading Pride and Prejudice help stop the sacking of the Capitol? Is is that silly for me to think that? And I think that's the question I've been sitting with since last week as I write my syllabi for, for next week. <laughs> um, what should I do? Michael, <laughs> help me. Well, I, do, I mean, I, uh, of course not, right? But um, not directly. But I think that those things that we say really are true. Um, you know, they're true um, duna me, you know, they're true in potency. Um, they're, they could be true. They're true or, or more precisely, Aristotle's way of describing what he means, but we call it potentiality, right? Or in potent or something like that. But his way of parsing it is always, it will happen, so long as nothing interferes, you know? But of course, everything always interferes in a way, right? That sounds so strong, um, but it's a mm-hmm. weak claim, really. Um, Pride and Prejudice, you know, okay. I mean, I, quite possibly. Um, I certainly, I like to read that book in, uh, in a course on origins of political economy in particular. Like that's always, and I fight my colleagues trained in politics and economics to include that. Um, not because it's a woman's voice or something, and you're searching so hard um, for for you know to to to, to have a more representative syllabus, um, a more diverse curriculum, but really because it is a reflection on political economy, and I think in a million such examples, right? And I, I don't mean to say that in a um, in a dismissive way. Like we could just have a conversation about that, which I think would be great. Like why, in a practical way. Does it make profound sense to read classics, to read great books um, in a, you know, in a, in, in a broad based education in, you know, the humanities and the social sciences for today's, you know, college and arts of study, arts and sciences students in, um, you know, public and private institutions? Like what, you know, I think case by case, it will make sense time and time again in ways that we might not think at first. 
But what's more profoundly interesting to me and what I've tried to make a case for to my students, you know, um, over the last, you know, 15 years or so is that um, by reading the classics, not this one or that one in this context or that context, but by reading them and speaking about them with our friends and family members, as I try to encourage them to do, and, 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 and not only, right, as, as much as we can with people outside of our ordinary circles, we create the conditions of the possibility for there not being 65-year-old women marching together with the vandals. Like, in other words, what made Wednesday possible, and we're all hearing these interviews, right, what made Wednesday possible is that people like you know, these most infamous photos that we've seen, people like those displayed in the most infamous photos that we've seen stood shoulder to shoulder with, you know, a 67-year-old woman who drove from Flagstaff, Arizona, together with her 87-year-old mother. You know? Yeah. Like, really? And maybe they read Pride and Prejudice at one point in their lives, but, right, something's clearly gone wrong <laughs> um, if, <laughs> If they're, and I mean, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, if I'm laughing, I'm, not laughing at, I'm laughing at myself, I'm, I mean, you know, I'm laughing to not cry. Like, how could it be that, that they feel closer to these, you know, survivalist Viking hat people than to me? Exactly. I mean, how did we do this? Where did we go wrong? Anyway, so that, does that make sense as a response? Well, sure, right? Because I mean, the power of the story what some people are now calling the big lie about the the stealing of the election, yeah. right? That story became more powerful than all of the other stories that that someone might identify with, right? That might prevent somebody from from doing the kind of thing like you know throwing a a stolen police shield through a window of the Capitol building. But the but the big, I mean, the story about the election is only uh, like a variation on a deeper story of yes. that our 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 world is being taken away from us mm -hmm. that we're not seen as legitimate, right? Um, that that somehow we're we're under fundamental threat, like our very identities are under, are under threat, right? Mm -hmm. that, that seems to be yeah. Um, I, I I yeah. I, I I just mean to say that um, of course then this becomes a causal question, and then it's right like a more com complicated social scientific story. But it's my. Um, intuition, I guess I want to say that uh, the power of the, the big lie narrative is as great as it is, and this is not a novel claim, right, you know, in large part because of the fracturing of the media environment and what gets less stressed, and I would stress more, is the lack of a core, honestly. I mean, of course, it's way earlier than college and university. It goes back to middle school and high school, but um, yeah, we don't read yeah, I mean, we don't read literature, forget grade or not. We don't read literature together at all anymore. We don't even, and I would even say it's important that we don't watch the same, you know, sitcoms on the three networks. Like, I think that kept us in the same world. Uh, we're, not, we're not reading the same books. Yeah, and, and we're not even watching the same TV. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, so this is sort of like a Robert Putnam argument here or something. But, um, you know, I think there's some some truth in that, too, which my friends on the left don't often like to acknowledge. Can I can I can I um, pose a question to you based on. So so we have a bunch of articles that you wrote for public seminar that we're also going to put up in the episode description. You have this very interesting article about Judith Butler that was written several years ago in which you're trying to mobilize Judith Butler to oppose a certain kind of. Um, identity politics, right? That of, uh, and the question is, um, if we're looking for quote unquote voices like our own, um, and and your argument there, and I and I want to contest this, or I want to pose you a counterexample, but your argument there is that we shouldn't think about voices like our own simply in terms of the demographic categories that we often do, right? So um, women who say, "I need to see more female voices in the canon," right? And we were just talking about Jane Austen in that in that vein, or African Americans, or and or gay people or all kinds of other groups. I want, but so here's the, my counter, um, because, you know, as you know, I care deeply about Cortex and, and, you know, really consider it kind of my life's work. Um, but I, I also like teaching at American university, um, recognize that there's certain necessities that <laughs> have to be taken into account. Right. So American university is a place that's 65% female. Some years is 65% female in the, in the undergraduate 
population. We could have a long talk about where are the men. I mean, they're at home watching porn and you know getting into QAnon and eventually sacking the capital or whatever. I don't know, um, but um, you know, it just seems to me that to keep doing the class that's like the you know the Plato, uh, Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, Marx, Nietzsche, as as though that's our core. Um, there's a reason why the, our students don't don't respond to that. Isn't there a kind of a pedagogical consideration such that you need to find interlocutors that are going to be appropriate for the audience to whom you're speaking? And there's nothing that's inappropriate about that. There's nothing inappropriate about having an African-American cop in, a, in African-American neighborhoods, right? That you might want to hire someone for that specific reason. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah, thank, I mean, thanks for the question. Um, this is also, you know, near and dear to my heart and, and kind of my life's work, I would say, certainly uh, defined, you know, the, the time that I have spent, I'll speak in the perfect, uh, to be ambiguous when it comes to the temporality of this claim, but the time that I have spent at Bard College Berlin, which is a, you know, strongly identified progressive campus sitting in you know, not just the European capital, but sitting in the capital of the Third Reich, um, and uh, and and not accidentally, right? The epicenter, the really true. This gets to art history, if we want, right? Um, the epicenter of you know the so-called Great Books Movement. I mean, the original, right? Where. who were, you know, German-speaking intellectuals because there were no German intellectuals yet because they didn't have a country, um, did they? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, right. So I think, I mean, I'm just trying to pile on here, right? Like, there are very good reasons to think that there's a highly contextualized uh, movement to shape higher education for aspiring leaders of newly emergent national, uh, nationally defined democratic Republican countries with a conservative lean, you know, right? We can super contextualize this, uh, that, you know, started in Germany, you know, whispered in the ear of the great intellectuals of New England, um, you know, who contemporary folks, I mean, certainly those with political identities similar to mine, really liked because they hated slavery. But if they listened to anything else they had to say, would despise them, you know, right? Um, were nationalists often, right? Or even in favor of the horrible expansionist war against Mexico. I mean, you know, it's appalling if you really know what these people thought from that perspective. Anyway. I agree, Tom, right? This is their work. They gave us, you know, even the great books, ultimately, that set of volumes, you know, comes from this, this, uh, this perspective. What I try to say in those pieces is, yes, but, <laughs> you know, it turns out you want, you know, I mean, you know, like you want to understand why diversity is important, read Herodotus. This remains my, I've been thinking about this for 25 years fairly actively, I know I come from a certain subject position um, that colors how I think about it. And I, I recognize that with all due respect to every voice I've heard speak to me on this issue, no one speaks to me about the value of, you know, pluralism more than Herodotus. So, you know, and so that's, that's okay. and then that just turns out to be true. And now, of course, as you shape your course curricula, it damn well ought to be the case that living in 2021, it doesn't look exactly like it looked like in 1931, which is why really? Tom, you and I could yeah. never live at St. John's that long, maybe. You know, right? It's like, <laughs> what was good in 1937, which included texts that were written two and a half months ago, right? It's not like everything ended then, you know, if you were reading right. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but right. So anyway, that yeah. would be my basic reply. Like low and Biden, then we can talk about that one too. Why Herodotus? But like that's the basic idea. When you actually get there, um, yeah, when you engage with Herodotus, amazing things happen. No matter who you are, no well, matter where you come from. So, so I want to I want to talk about Herodotus a little bit more. But but before I do that, I need to to mention um, Sarah. I believe that our colleague. 
Patrick Jackson in the School of International Service wrote a whole book about how the Great Books Movement was used as a kind of nationalist, um, patriotic, and and ultimately very scary, politically scary thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to give a shout out to Patrick um, if he ever listens here. <laughs> um, but that's 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 look, they're big concerns, right? What's the political agenda behind the books that you pick? Right, that's not an illegitimate question by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, even even someone like Austin, who is sometimes held out as an exemplar of maybe an early kind of limited feminism, right? I mean, if you think about the the colonial circulation of that work, there are there are lots of of ways of saying that that Austin was herself deployed as part of the the British colonial project, um, and you know, sort of like exported as a way of teaching you know other people in other places how to be the right kind of woman. Um, so, you know, the question is like, what are these books doing um, in themselves and then what are their afterlives and how do they get deployed politically, which the curriculum is is an example of and we should think about it that way. I agree. I mean, some some of some of the value. So I would always say a common core. One other thing that I might just say about this is that what I what I'm time and again, every day, any day, whenever anyone likes <laughs> sort of ready to go to the floor for that is to say to wrestle about um, is is the how, not the what, you know? So this is why I resist great books. I don't think they're great books, big G, big B. All the same, I think like when we want to talk about pluralism as a value, I'm going to fight for Herodotus, not because it's a big G, big, big B, great book, but because he happened to articulate something. And I do, you know, I do share in my German intellectual heritage uh, that I acknowledge way, I share... I share an appreciation for origins. I mean, I do think, you know, I, I think from a, and that means the hideous and, and the appalling <laughs> together with the good. You know, I, 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 if it's up to me, like I'll never build a class without the Hebrew Bible in it. Not because I think everyone should identify with the God of the Hebrews or worship the God of the Hebrews at all, but because it's an origin. Now, of course, it's an origin that has origins, but it, it nevertheless has come to be an origin for all kinds of things. Um, and I think we need to encounter that. But again, it's this how, right? You know, it's like, if the argument for that wouldn't be because the origin is so great, you know, no, because that's where we are. We live in that world. This is the capital that was built. And you have to, this is an Arendtian point, okay? And, you know, right? This is exactly the way that Hannah Arendt defends the tradition. Um, and I agree with you know, that you defend the tradition because it happens to be the tradition you're born in and because preser- the preservation, this makes her a conservative culturally, you know, and, and that's hard for her friends on the left. Uh, she was politically left, obviously. I think that sometimes that comes into question somehow. She, it's not. She was politically left, but she was culturally conservative and this confounded the New York liberal establishment. They genuinely, profoundly didn't understand um, yeah. So, Michael, I want to ask you more about this how, because this is what we're doing with students in class. And so what is it about Herodotus or any of the little G, little B great books? Like, what is it about the how of those texts, the way they take up ideas, the way they demonstrate perspectives and their and their their conflict or re- relations to one another that makes the books important to keep on reading? Like, what is it? about Herodotus or, or sort of anything in general. You know, it's like, these people need a shout out. So I'm gonna give my shout out to Homer and to Plato, uh, you know, because his, uh, they deserve it. Um, and, and this would be my, this sort of applies to the Greeks, you know, which of course never existed, but um, <laughs> and it's our, <laughs> just like there were no Germans in 1841, no matter how much they wished there were, there weren't any, um, there weren't Greeks in the sense, there weren't ancient Greeks, but what they have, what you find, what you find, I would argue, when you carefully engage with the Iliad, I'm thinking of the Iliad and the Republic and Herodotus, is this idea, right? That um, I'll quote it now from the first sentence of the Republic, which nobody really pays that much attention to despite how famous it is, where Plato has Socrates emphasize that the, um, 
you know, that the, that the barbarians have brought this new goddess, these, the, the northerners, the crazy horse riding people, right? And that they've, they've brought this new goddess to Athens and they did just as well as the Athenians. And he doesn't call them the Athenians. He calls them the natives, right? The natives of Athens. And so that's the idea. So I think that's it. That well, well, yeah. Just to make sure I mean, uh, that we get it. So there's a cosmopolitanism in that, right? That, that we contemporary readers might just easily just breeze right over, right? There's a critique of the natives might actually not be that good. Probably the, the, the crazy horse riding people might've been better, right? You know, they're, they're innovating, they're bringing new gods there and they, and, and they, they did at least just as well as the native, right? And he, and he doesn't identify as an Athenian, but I would push back against cosmopolitan. I don't see this as cosmopolitan really, um, right? I mean, Socrates is a died in the wool Athenian ultimately, but what he loves about Athens, I would say, like Pericles, so that's a, it's your Thucydides reference, you know, is that you, you're from somewhere, you know, and, you, and you're a patriot, you know, in this model. You are a patriot because you happen to be born in that place and not somewhere else. Even Herodotus is some kind of a patriot, right, for his Ionic borderland experience between the Greek cities and the empires of the East. Not even in some way. He's a patriot. I think it's pretty clear, right, like the, the great passage on the climate of Peloponnesus. And, you know, he is a patriot and he means it, but he's not like those, you know, scary right-wing nationalists who mobilized, no, I mean it, um, you know, who mobilized the great books to like promote the American way, you know, b before and during the Cold War. Um, they're patriots in the sense of what's great about the place I come from is that we want to know people from everywhere. So that's the cosmopolitanism. So that's where the how comes in. So the, yeah. there's a what, okay, there is a what, because you couldn't do this with just any book. But the what is not like someone has a template for how to live. It's just, this is you know, this is a body of literature evolved over centuries that is listening to people from everywhere um, and is distinctively its own and is not hiding that, you know, and that's the thing. And that, I think that defines what we wish to be as America in particular now, I would say, but in general, what we kind of wish to be as the modern global exportation of European culture um, we're from somewhere, we're proud of where we're from, we're trying to build something where we are, but we're listening, not but, and we're listening to voices, you know, from it, from everywhere. So. Can, can I go back to a second? So the, the distinction between the how and the what, so, cause you, cause you went pretty fast from the, yeah. the experience of the classroom to, you know, kind of like American identity. Um, I guess my, my view is always, and, and I'm not sure if this is the right view and, and I'm not sure where I picked it up. So it's kind of like one of those opinions that I have that, uh, but, but what you're trying to do in class is you're trying to um, allow students to participate in an activity and to share in a certain kind of ethos. And that that's, that's really the core of what you're trying to do. Now it happens that there are certain instruments that allow you to do that or make it easier to do that. And, and that's where the books come in and you need to have, um, something that's in common. Um, I mean, just because, you know, if you live in a university that's a complete smorgasbord, it's easy to get lost. It's easy to get spiritually lost that you're not sure where you're going or what the trajectory of your story is. And you don't have anything in common just to talk to other people, right? So one of the great things about the St. John's model, and I think we share some criticisms, but is that everybody's reading the same thing on the same night and that there is a, it's a, it's a very communitarian place, right? In good ways and in bad. But um, it's at one extreme, our contemporary universities at the other extreme where we have nothing in common. And, and so therefore everything feels like it's just transactional, right? But we need to have something that we hold up, even if they're only like the Republic is the best available means. It might not be the best possible, but it's the best one that I have. And, and different times might require different books, right? And the Republic for various reasons might be a good place to start with some people, but not a good place to start with other people, right? Does that does that sound? I mean, I, I so I mean, sometimes I think about the the books that we read in class as sort of like um, different machines at the gym that are working out different muscle sectors, right? And that, but it's the exercise is the key thing. It's not the machine is not the end, right? Uh, so, I don't, what do you think about that? I feel like I've been talking way too much. So, um, but uh, but I think yeah, yes. 
basically. Um, that, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> Sorry. This is another one of your essays, uh, your public seminar essays. Uh, you talk about a concept that you call perspectivalism without relativism. And I want to just read the definition you, you provide for that, that concept. And, and then I want us to talk about it with relation to this idea about the, maybe the gym and the different. Present, present Michael will have to confront past Michael. <laughs> Who is that idiot? No, yeah, contest. <laughs> so I, th you know, I think he's very smart. Um, he's saying um, that, that there's this problem with, you know, saying that there are, you know, there are all these different books or all these different ways that we could get at ideas because that is a slippery slope toward a kind of intellectual or moral relativism. And then you say that there, we, what we really need is this thing called perspectivalism without relativism. And you say that the, the perspectivalism without relativism would be the need for sensitivity to multiple points of view, coupled with an insistence upon acting on the basis of taking up just one, right? Which, and that's the hedge against relativism. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit more? <laughs> that's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, well, and, I, and this is what I associate with, with Butler. So I like, I like to, um, you know, I kind of, um, I like to cite her as an ally uh, on this for, for reasons that are in part strategic, of course, but they're not only strategic. And I, I see her work as um, I see her work as illustrative of this, take it or leave it, um, which is to say that her general intellectual attitude, with which I've strongly identified since I read um, I first read her work, uh, I first read the essay Contingent Foundations when I was going through my own great books education. Um, you know, at, at Shimer College, uh, which what was then called Shimer College, now called the Shimer uh, School, uh, Great Book School of North Central College. My shout out to Shimer, which continues to exist somehow, hopefully, uh, at least for the duration of our conversation, <laughs> and maybe a bit longer, <laughs> um, a place I love dearly. Um, so, in, in, right, I've been reading, it had been that, right? So, Scheimer is super similar to St. John's, if one of the 14 listeners is familiar with St. John's, but not Scheimer. Um, they're completely the same and entirely different, is the way that I always like to say it. Uh, but the curriculum is about 85% the same. And I read Butler to come to the point. I read Butler for the first time, having gone through, like, the 85% of the curriculum that's identical to the St. John's curriculum, uh, like we read Euclid, you know, right? And we read Lavoisier and we read like all these things that you would never be studying as a student of the humanities. And then I took a, right, this is where the difference comes in. You know, I got to take an elective my junior year <laughs> and it was in feminist political thought um, and I read Contingent Foundation. So that's, the, so here's the essay, that's there's the series. Here's the citation. If you want to know what I mean, by perspectivalism or perspectivalism uh, without relativism, I would say we could start with Contingent Foundations um, by Butler or others of her works, where she describes, you know, the idea that she pushes, she resists or pushes back there um, against the idea that one can simply inhabit existing categories. Uh, you know, so like you don't start every sentence, you know, as a Jewish white as a Jewish cis white male from New York or something like that in my case, um, to put my put my identifiers in order of their greatest importance. Would that help to understand what you're saying? Uh, right. Um, but nevertheless, one adopts a perspective that one acknowledges. So one has this ironic, and you could do this with other thinkers other than Butler, obviously, but you adopt a somewhat ironic, Richard Rorty presents a similar picture in a different register. You adopt an ironic register, but you nevertheless inhabit a place. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that's what we're missing, right? And that, and, and then Wednesday, it's a, not to go back, not to dwell, but, you know, it's like Wednesday morning, not even Wednesday morning, right? Like Wednesday, 1 p.m. until, or, you know, even 11.35 a.m. Once Pence was done feeling really awkward, um, you know, that the rest of the boring part up until around 2.25 p.m. or whatever, 
was a moment where one could, you know, one could experience that, where there's a kind of understanding one's place in the world because of some formality, because of some social occasion where you say, oh yeah, that's who I am. Um, but you recognize that you could just as easily, right, be something else, but it requires you to have some critical distance from that, um, that identity that you inhabit. And that's what it means to be like someone. I guess that's the idea. We, we are all, all those other things are true. I also am Jewish. I also am a New Yorker. I also am whatever politically progressive, but I am an American and that means something. And um, it means something to me to kind of have a community of Americans that we recognize one another as Americans. And I think, <laughs> I know this is true, Butler tells me I'm wrong, but that, 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 that has to do with her thinking. But I, I see that as part of her First Amendment um, activism, which is real and, and, and is costly to her, um, you know, in terms of her usual alliances. Yeah. And that saying that one is an American would, would sort of mean roughly the same thing to everyone saying that. But that's that's the sort of follow-on idea. Yeah, and we can profoundly disagree about whether Israel is a settler colonial state and still be Americans. But like somehow that's been lost. Just to take one example, right? I mean, it's like Butler says that and she's un-American. What does that even mean? You know what I mean? I mean yeah. 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 Or right. yeah. all the categories are, are like linked up to one another and then they move. Right. To- There's no irony whatsoever. There's no critic irony, not meaning like, haha, that's funny, right? Or whatever irony means to most people, but like critical distance, as you were saying earlier. Isn't it? I mean, if you think just to go back to Herodotus for a second, I mean, people, I mean, so I don't read Herodotus in class and, and I should, but. Um, but oftentimes students will react to text by saying, well, so-and-so is just a white male or so-and-so is just this. And, and I think what they don't always realize is that they're, they're kind of reenacting racism, right? And they're kind of you know, saying that um, now those are important facts. I mean, I, it, it's an important fact that Herodotus is male, but I don't think he understands himself as white. Do you? I mean, it's not like a category that exists for him in ancient Greece, I mean, there are you know, like ethnic boundaries and there are sort of things that you could think of that would be equivalent, but they're not not the same thing. Um, but uh, but that somehow to think that people have layers and that that they have identities, but they're not entirely those identities. That seems to be the point that you're really well, I do driving. Think one at. of the is reasons why it's great there? is that we don't have to just read them from outside. We also can read from outside and we can, we can engage in the serious sort of also archaeological work of like understanding the material culture of Ionian civilization and the ways in which it was European and the ways in which it was Asian and the way, ways in which it was Eurasian and the ways in which it was none of those, right? And things like that. But Herodotus himself thematizes this. That's one of the reasons why I like it so much, right? Where he himself is not, he's not participating in a Eurocentrism that he recognizes as nascent, right? He's telling, you know, right? He's, he's telling mainland Greeks and he's telling Athenians really, but, you know, he's telling mainland Greeks, like, get over yourself. Right. I mean, first of all, like everything good in your civilization comes from Egypt anyway. Like, right. Like, I'm, yeah, right? Right. like all the gods. Act, the original, right? Like, I'm going to no. tell you why the Asians and the Europeans fought. Like, I'm going to buy into this like clash of civilizations narrative. But first, I'm going to talk to you for about three and a half hours about every cool thing in Egypt. Just for this. Just for this, I like to teach the text. It's like, right. what's book two, right? Like you could quiz the students. What's book two about? Oh, probably it's about like how the Greeks started fighting in Troy. No, right? It's like a catalog of every cool thing about Egypt. Yeah. Um, anyway. Right. Well, it, it, uh, you remember the book Black Athena right. that was a big yeah. controversy in the yeah. in the nineties? But that's Herodotus, right? Is that the gods yes. from I mean, Egypt? You know. So, but but of course, it's not. That doesn't make like black the Black Athena and and and. De- decolonizing movements wrong in my mind either because it's a projection many intellectuals in the course of the cold war and after did put up this european you know so it's a reaction against something real just not the greek texts <laughs> you know right? it's, and that's yeah. yeah and that's a big part of this mess yeah yeah um, well I mean, I also just want to make the point that if you think about the the canonical thinkers, first of all, the very word canon is a religious term, as though we're part of some kind of church. And I guess part of what we're saying is that we do need to be kind of something common, 
right? And so that there is some sort of church-like elements to that. But um, but I'm not sure the canon is the right the, the right model. But if you think about many of the thinkers of the tradition, they were all like the critics of their time, right? I mean, they were um, the um, like the the weirdos. And I mean, I think about um, John Locke, for example. I mean, Locke was the secretary to this guy, Shaftesbury, who basically tried to lead a coup d'etat. I mean, if there's anyone that he's closest to, it's like, a weird mix of Marx and Lenin, right? Like he's the guy who's overthrowing the, I mean, literally overthrowing the regime. And so to read him as somehow like, well, you are like the, the partisan of the shopkeeper and the bourgeois is a very weird. And I mean, the, the book, the shopkeeper is part of Locke for sure, but it's not the whole thing. And it's just sort of a weirdly reductive, only in terms of our own political allegiances or disallegiances. Um, Seems to me I mean, to be true. Can I, I, I can I raise another? Um, as you say that about Locke, I just have to throw in the course that I've never taught that I most want to teach is Locke, Lenin, and Luxembourg. Um, so I, I completely agree. Like I, I and I mean it sincerely. Like I think that that's a super that would be an example of perspectivalism. Without, I mean, right? And we could, you know, I mean, if I really wanted to get the whole spectrum or something, I we could throw in, you know, who. But you know, uh, but a protein or someone, but you know, it's all in. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, Rosa Luxemburg is somebody that, that we should read more, right? And she's I mean, in, this, in these contexts. Um, yes, yeah, I mean, a lot of the and revolutionaries how, I mean, have, across history my argument were people. My friends on the left. Like, how can you seriously occupy a left intellectual space if you wish to? No one needs to. But, you know, if you want to think of yourself as left and intellectual, how can you not know anything about all these things that everyone's quoting on every page? Like, you know, like you read Marx, you know, chapter and verse as though it's the Bible, but you genuinely have no idea what he's talking about. And you know, it because, right, because he's quoting Aristotle everywhere. Right. And it's like you've never in a million years would think, you know, so there's that too. Mark is one of the most classically liberated, uh, liberally educated people so this right, is ever. Right. I don't think that's that these would not be like main arguments in any way, but I do think there's some of that too, you know, where simply to avoid being a vandal, which is the easiest condition for human beings. Um, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you familiarize yourself, that would be a more canonical, you know, sort of justification for a particular common core. I would never use the term canon, or I certainly would try to avoid simply because it also has that sense of rule, right? Like Torah, for instance, where I was, you know, like there's a law, there's an instruction that is found and here you're going to get it. But, but in the other sense, right? Like this is the liturgy. This is, this is, this is the book of common prayer. If we're going to call it the book of common prayer, I'm actually okay, to be honest. We're not a church, but we are a community. And we need, right, like like the Book of Common Prayer, if we're not going to kill each other anymore, if we're not going to have another Oliver Cromwell, which is like, we need a Book of Common Prayer. And now I mean Americans, you know. We obviously yeah. need a Book of Common yeah. Prayer. Yeah. Case in point, yes. <laughs> and now let's talk about what Michael Michael integral is Catholic. Uh, we need a hymnal. We need a hymnal. I, I think only that's right. Only some people will get that. That that. Uh, can I can I bring up another phrase that uh, strikes me as illustrates sort of from the other side? Um, you guys all know this mm -hmm. phrase: "Check your privilege," right? Which is usually deployed. Feels like it's deployed in class as a way of shutting people down, right? When somebody says something that you think is offensive, you're like, "Check your privilege," right? You are white, cisgendered, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to that extent, I, I oppose it. I think it's a bad thing. I think it, it shuts down conversation. But if you if you think about what the meaning of it is, right? I mean, isn't it a sort of a synonym for know yourself, right? And if you think of what the Socratic injunction to know yourself really means, it doesn't mean go to the therapist and talk about your feelings and, and you know, like at, talk about how you're, you hate your mom or something. It's really know this political and social structures that make you who you are because you're not an, an, you know, an atomistic individual in a void that you participate in all kinds of structures that have histories. Those histories are often very creepy and have unjust things. And it's not illegitimate at all. In fact, it's the opposite. It's what we're supposed to be doing is to be checking your privilege in that sense. Um, if you can do it without hating yourself and, and you know, turning into some 
as you say, vandal. Um, but that that seems to me that is the liberal education uh, vocation, right? Yeah, I mean, I, in another way, that's humility, right? I mean, that you know, so so folks probably wouldn't like that. Folks who who who, who use, I mean, I would say deploy, um, you know, that that locution probably wouldn't identify with it being said. What you're saying is be humble. They they wouldn't like to see those as um, functionally equivalent, but we do have these conversations in my classrooms, or we have had these conversations in my classrooms in Berlin a lot, um, and, I, and I welcome them. Um, yeah, and that's exactly what I say, you know, that, um, you know, I hear you reminding me to be humble, and uh, in this particular way, you know, to material opportunities that I've had because of where I come from. And um, I, I agree, you know, insofar as you will check your, we're all privileged if we ended up in this classroom in Berlin, I tell my friends, right? We're all privileged right. we're sitting here. It's a privilege right. to sit here. It really is, I'll say that. Um, and if we can all check our privilege, then it then it should be fair for, for me to accept that from you, if, I, if, if you can accept from me back. It's an admonition to be humble, and I'm not even repeating that admonition to you, right? I mean, I don't think you need to check your privilege, actually, but if you're reminding me that I need to check mine, you know, vis-a-vis the power differential in the classroom because I'm the professor, then fine, absolutely. I think it's important, so long as you can hear me out, right, that, you know, I hear that as an, I'm going to hear that as an admonition to be humble, and I, and I accept it. Right. I mean, it sometimes feels like the people who say check your privilege are often not very well, clear about their I mean, own that may also be true, the... but I don't feel like it's my place, right? You know, in, in the classroom in particular, right? To yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to insist on that. Right. You know, it, it's it to me to me to me, right? It's it's a it's a move within the game of differentiated power that that my role qua institutional representative in the room, or as I put it, the only person being paid to be here. Um, right, as, as the only person being paid to be here, I just need to hear it. And I will, I just, I'll, I'll just allow myself to say that I'm going to hear it this way. And I ask you to accept that because, right, even the checking of privilege itself, right, as you're saying, has, you know, ha- has ramifications within that general system. I mean, we have a we have a, a more important obligation, as it were, to, to be aware, to be humble and, and indeed to check our privilege in that sense than the students do, right? Just because of differential subject positions. Right, and at the same time, an obligation to demonstrate that no system of power is absolute, right? And the classroom can be a model for how that works if the person, if the only person being paid to be there is is willing to exemplify intellectual humility in light of the other subject positions in the room. Um, So the call to check your privilege is not a call to be quiet. It's, It's a call to contemplate something. Right. That's right. You can interpret that. If you could pull that off by getting people to have that interpretation, it would be great. Um, well, guys, we're coming to the end of our time. Do, should we um, close the circle? Do we need to say anything else about, I mean, does liberal education have a politics? And maybe that's too big of a, um, I mean, what, what's our obligation in this moment? And maybe I'll say something a little bit controversial. I mean, every, so Sarah, you you brought up the the justification mm-hmm. for liberal education that it's going to make us better citizens, and uh, I think that's true, sort of. But I think there are a lot of reasons to doubt that, or at least not to put that because it, it seems to me that it introduces a kind of higher sense of transactionalism into the understanding of what liberal education is. Um, that we maybe we doing liberal education because we think it's the right way of life and not simply for uh, you know, our alleged benefits. And, and and as Michael just reminded us, there are many liberal educated people who are horrible, not good citizens, right? Um, but that still leaves me with the question that I have obligations as a citizen to, to think about. So I, I don't know, do you guys have any final thoughts about, about this issue? Wrong answers only, please. Well, mine, mine is a strong yes. I mean, I'll say, I mean, I think, and that's, so, I mean, I, I, and this would be like the Parthenon liberal education 
book. I mean, it is a book on the Parthenon, so I'm not saying anyone's going to like make it through all 200 pages if they're looking for like an answer to Tom's question from my perspective, to which they can, you know, agree, disagree, dissent, and, and revise or whatever. But but that is what that book is trying to say. And um, we tried it, we, you know, we, we, we the title says liberal education because that was ultimately the decision of the press. I mean, we sort of fought a war. I would call it liberal arts education. Um, and um, and and uh, because I think that it is a humanistic education in the arts and, you know, the arts in the most expansive sense. So politics is an art, right? Um, medicine is an art, um, et cetera, not a science. Um, even, you know, even mechanics is an art. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, medicine is not a science. <laughs> we saved this until the very end, so we can't. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, needs needs to identify that way, but it but it does have the politics. And if you if you're advocating, in my mind, if you're advocating for liberal arts education in some serious way and not in some you know sort of um, instrumental way, as you put it, Tom, then what you're 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 arguing for is some sort of sense of a civic commitment. You know that um, yeah that a science is always a civic duty, not a you know and no other in particular, not a disciplinary, right? It's not training disciplinary specialists. It's not um, equipping people for the workforce. It's fulfilling a civic duty of a kind. And then- But, but there's considerations about the politics of liberal education within itself, right? And then there's considerations about how you act towards the larger, because we can't survive without a larger political community. It's not good for us if we're gonna have a, a civil war of QAnon people versus, you yeah. know, Black Lives Matter or something, right? Yeah, that, we're that's possible not good. because we're keeping it together <laughs> right. and we're keeping it together to make it possible. You know, that's, I mean, that's, that's the way I feel. So, so Michael, I just wanna make sure you, you consider yourself together, to be keeping it not, together. Not, 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 not intransitively. Intransitively, I am not keeping it together these days. But transitively, I'm sure as heck trying. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, uh, I, I mean, Aaron, the you have only any thing last, I want to say is that I'm, I'm going to sit with a question about the, the question we started with about the people who decided to go into the Capitol. And it's, <laughs> I don't know what to, like, <laughs> Trashing people well, I mean, down and, and give them I copies mean, of the a Republic. Right this person wants to know what to do about about that, and I don't know. I don't know, and I think it's important to say that I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's a different question than the yeah, question of is. what we should do and how we think about ourselves in the classroom. Right. Not unrelated, but yeah. Well, guys, I think our time is up here. Michael, it's been it's been really wonderful, and um, we're just just so happy to have you on. And and uh, I certainly remember fondly our time together back at St. John's College. <laughs> so uh, we, I think we still have a book I'll of common prayer. Regime, uh, you know, right? <laughs> in the days of privilege. Yeah, there's lots of. <laughs> there may be some inappropriate uh, parts in our common book of prayer. But oh, it's, yeah, uh, those problems. Anyway, um, Michael, this is so lovely. It was wonderful right, to be here. to have those problems. Thank you, Sam.